Hello, everyone. My name is Alex Renee, and I'd like to welcome you to the ACIR 2020 Resource Guide Podcast. I'm here with the three co-chairs of Ropes and Grave Anti-Corruption and International Risk Practice Group, Brian Rolson, Maria Calvet, and Amanda Rod, who are here to share some insights on the Resource Guide to the U.S. FCPA. Ryan and Maria, can you tell me a little bit about your experience working on the first edition of the Resource Guide to the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act? Sure, Alex. In 2012, the Department of Justice and the SEC released the first Resource Guide to the U.S. FCPA intended at the time to try to bring together in one document all of the guidance that it had gleaned and was able to compile based on prior resolutions and prosecutions and its interpretation to the extent that it could make it publicly available of the applicable statutes and the expectations of companies and individuals seeking to comply with it. At that time, the department asked 10 or so line prosecutors to assist with the drafting to review prior cases, resolutions, to analyze statutes, uh, legislative history, and any number of different contributing documents in order to build out the guide. And Ryan and I were both a part of that effort. Yes, I, th- I think, Maria, you were responsible for footnotes 50 to 75, and I had 100 to 120. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it was, a, it was obviously a very monumental undertaking at the time, and, and nothing like that had ever been done in history of CPA. It was a very much a welcome guide to to the community, both the defense bar as well as industry as well to get some guidance on it. You know, and what we're seeing today in the updates that are now, I guess, eight years in the making, if you will, uh, are not fundamental changes from the basic principles underlying the uh, 2012 guide, but really updates to things that have happened since then. For example, new policies that have come out, uh, new cases, and new approaches by the department as well as the SEC. So in that, in that regard, it brings this manual and, and the guidance around it current. That's fantastic. Um, so, Maria, can you give us an overview of some of the enforcement updates um, that have been made to the guide? That's right. So, the first the first iteration of the guide was written eight or so years after a real uptick in enforcement of the FCPA by DOJ and SEC. What we've seen now, as Ryan mentioned, is the following eight years have seen even greater growth in enforcement, not just domestically by DOJ and SEC, but by a number of other foreign regulators as well. And so what this updated guide does, um, as Ryan said, it just uh, doesn't make any fundamental changes, but it does serve as a repository of those developments since the first guide of additional case law and guidance that's been issued since 2012. Specifically, there are additional um, points addressed with respect to corporate enforcement policy, monitors, coordination of corporate resolutions and penalties, um, the anti-piling on policy, for example, and the criminal division's evaluation of corporate compliance programs as well. There's a lot to follow up and unpack um, from, from, from what you just said. Let's start with the recent cases. Can you tell us and give us an idea of what recent cases have been incorporated and what impact um, those cases should have? Yeah, so it won't be any huge surprise that the three cases that I'd point us to are the Hoskins case, Eskenazi, and Seng. Now, the guide does make reference to any number of other cases and resolutions, and we'll certainly talk about those. But 
for Hoskins, the Second Circuit determined in that case that an individual can be criminally prosecuted for conspiracy to violate the anti-bribery provisions only if that individual falls under one of three categories. The guide update notes that this is an area of jurisprudence still in flux. And so you can see where the department isn't really willing and the SEC isn't really willing to confine itself because of the conflicting district court decisions in other circuits. So I think we should continue to keep our eyes out for individual um, liability theories by the Justice Department. Yeah, and I think this was a huge one, Maria, as, as you know from your time at the department, using a conspiracy charge is a very powerful tool uh, that can be used to charge a number of individuals beyond core conspirators who may be, or core individuals who may be involved, and to really broaden the ability to bring charges against additional companies and individuals. So this was really a challenge to the department. I expect them to, as you noted, not, not only to not concede this in other circuits, but to fight, continue fighting uh, on this front. Right. And standing almost in opposite position is the Eskenazi case. There, the 11th yeah. Circuit ruled that the term instrumentality was broadly defined to mean any entity that is controlled by the government of a foreign country that performs a function the controlling government treats as its own. And there's some magic language around these a non-exhaustive list of factors. Now, to be clear, that list of factors hasn't changed from the 2012 guide to the 2020 guide, but now there's an 11th Circuit case that bolsters the, the department's position on that. And then finally, the same case, just to point it out, there's a district court rejection of a request to instruct the jury regarding local law as an affirmative defense. And that reaffirms that the defense is very, very narrow um, and that the absence of local law prohibiting the conduct is not sufficient. And here, there's also a policy consideration um, regarding the department's real hard-fought effort and engagement with organizations like the OECD to continue international enforcement and the development of legal frameworks in multiple countries. And we've certainly seen that happen. So it's not surprising that there would also be reference to this case to sort of reiterate the point, right, that local law is not a defense except in narrow circumstances. Thank you, Maria. Um, let, me, let me ask about some recent enforcement actions. Can, can, you, can you tell us what, what are some recent enforcement actions that have been added to the guide and, 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 and what, what we can learn from those actions? Sure. So any update to the resource guide would have to make reference to the Odebrecht corruption scandal coming out of Brazil and in multiple countries around the globe and in Latin America, which it's just a very significant case regarding blatant um, bribery orchestrated at multiple levels of the company. As you may know, it's a Brazilian company that had a secret financial structure um, a very robust structure that operated to make, create, and, and hide accounts for corrupt payments to foreign officials in multiple jurisdictions. There are um, related investigations in Brazil, Colombia, Peru, and other jurisdictions as well. So it's not at all surprising um, that that would be a recent enforcement action highlighted. The SBM case is another example of criminal liability for, for a management, right? So that's an individual, a former CEO of a publicly traded energy company in the Netherlands, and um, they retain third-party sales agents to pay bribes to officials in five countries. Um, and then the third example I'd point to is hiring practices, hiring, promoting, and retaining children of, in that case, Chinese officials to win business 
with those officials. So each one of those enforcement actions that we've just outlined captures a different area of significant risk and significant attention by regulators. What recent agency guidance has been incorporated and how does the guide incorporate the corporate enforcement policy? So the recent agency guidance that's been incorporated, there have been multiple. So the corporate enforcement policy, the anti-piling on policy, the selection of monitors in criminal division matters, and the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. And again, here we see where these policies um, are all being brought together in one place, right? So the guide incorporates the corporate enforcement policy by adding a new section on the policy. And that's actually the most significant update that we see. It summarizes the sentencing reductions under that policy, whereby companies that voluntarily self-disclose misconduct that they identify, cooperate fully and make timely and appropriate remediation, get a presumptive declination where, they, and when there are aggravating circumstances, they get a 50% reduction. Now, again, this isn't new, but the incorporation of it into the guide is new. Companies that do not voluntarily self-disclose, but they meet any number of other requirements, get a 25% reduction. Does the DOJ ever consider other factors in determining if a declination is appropriate? Oh, absolutely. Um, though we, we know this generally from other matters, um, the guide provides three specific examples of recent declinations that show that DOJ may consider other factors in determining whether a declination is appropriate. Prosecution by other authorities, personal liability, and lack of prior history. And they give examples of each one of those where the department has taken a path on pursuing a corporate resolution despite the evidence of conduct where there was either another resolution pending with another regulator abroad for the same conduct where the company accepted responsibility before that conduct, or where the foreign regulator was able to identify and charge culpable individuals. And then finally, where the DOJ considered a company's lack of prior criminal history and the effect and effectiveness of its compliance program to uh, refuse to pursue the case. Maria, does the guide provide any examples of the anti-piling on policy in practice? It does. It points to the Braska matter that DOJ, the SEC, Brazilian and Swiss authorities all brought action in each one of those cases and credited one another in imposing fines and disgorgement on a publicly traded company, the Brazilian petrochemical company, where they took into account the resolutions that were reached by their counterparts in, in reaching their own resolutions. And that's not the only example. There are many others. How does the guide incorporate recent guidance on imposition of monitors? Yes, here the guide really emphasizes that um, monitorship is not meant to be punitive, and it's likely not necessary where a corporation's compliance program and controls are effective and appropriately resourced at the time of the resolution. And that's an important distinction because the evaluation of the com compliance program, as we'll discuss, isn't just what was in place at the time that the alleged misconduct occurred, but also at the time of the resolution. And when the department is deciding whether to impose a monitor, prosecutors have to weigh the potential benefits of that monitor for the company and the public against the cost of the monitor and its impact on the operations to the company. Thank you for that. And, and following up, how does the guide incorporate recent guidance on evaluation of corporate compliance programs? 
here again, it emphasizes that in assessing a compliance program, prosecutors will look at the status of the program, as I mentioned, both at the time of the offense and at the time of the charging decisions or resolutions. And it lays out the three fundamental questions that a prosecutor should be asking when assessing a corporate compliance program. And of course, if the prosecutor should be asking this question, the corporate entity and its compliance professionals should be asking themselves these questions as well. The first, is the company's compliance program well-designed? Is it being applied in good faith? In other words, is that program resourced well enough and empowered enough to function effectively within the company? And then does it actually work? Does it work in practice? Here, the guide notes that internal investigations should aim to identify the root causes of any misconduct and ensure that any lessons that the investigation yields or anything that they learn from that misconduct is integrated into the compliance program and into the fabric of the company to strengthen its efficacy. Thank you, Maria. Brian, turning to you, can you give an overview of updates as to scope and jurisdictional reach? Yeah, um, there were a number of clarifications in the guide relating to scope of enforcement as well as jurisdictional reach, you know, largely stemming from some of the cases that Maria discussed earlier that have resulted in sharpening of both the SEC's and DOJ's focus on on particular cases as well as uh, timeframes for cases uh, on that. So there have been a number of changes on that. Have there been any changes to the categories of persons and entities covered? Sort of. There was an update where the guide replaced the category of shareholders, quote-unquote, of an issue or domestic concern with shareholders acting on behalf of an issue or domestic concern. As a practical matter, I think this was probably clarifying point from the prior guide because um, you know you could see the way the guide was written originally as potentially impacting passive shareholders, uh, you know, in terms of civil or criminal liability, to, you know, at least for enforcement investigation purposes. But the reality is, is that there would never be a case against a truly passive, disinterested investor who's not at all aware of or involved in a scheme. So I think this was clarifying some of that language around around that issue. Does the guide clarify the scope of enforcement with respect to a failed bribery? Yeah, and again, this is something that the the law, of course, never really changed on it, but they did make clear in the revisions that you don't have to be successful with the bribe. So it's sort of the same concept that if I walk into a bank and and think I, I think I rob it, and instead of getting a bag of cash, I get a bag of confetti, still guilty of bank robbery. So I think what they're trying to clarify here is the fact that just because you are not successful in actually bribing a foreign public official or that that doesn't work out, that doesn't mean that you're not responsible potentially under the FCPA because it's really, really your intent that matters. And the guide points to a case involving uh, you know, prosecution of an individual where the individual bribed a middleman who he thought was actually going to be delivering the cash to to a foreign official, and in fact, the, the middleman just kept the money. This works on the flip side, too. So if the government can't show intent to bribe exists, then it can't prove its case either. So it, it kind of kind of works both ways, but at least they're clarifying, because this is a very common question, I think, we as practitioners uh, get over the years in terms of, you know, what about, you know, does a bribe have to be successful and those sort of things, really, really showing that intent is key. Thanks, Ryan. Does the guide provide any additional guidance on parent subsidiary liability? 
you know, consistent, I think, to some extent with the Hoskins case. It, it makes clear that in addition to establishing the agency relationship between the parent and the subsidiary, that basically the subsidiary must have acted within the scope of the authority conferred by its parent for its actions to be imputed to the parent. So really kind of getting to traditional agency principles and clarifying that point that in theory, this should help to establish that just because simply the fact of the matter that you're simply a subsidiary of a company, that doesn't mean automatically that the parent is going to be liable for corrupt conduct by the subsidiary. Does the guide provide any additional guidance on successor liability in the M&A context? Yeah, so a little more practical points here from the prior version, and this is something that in the last few years, companies have been very focused on. There have been a few opinion letters that the FCPA unit published in the interim, and and, and also a lot of questions, a lot of M&A activity and some enforcement actions involving the acquisition of one company by another, and then the, the acquired company uh, had some some issues on it, kind of what does that mean for the acquirer. And and what they what the DOJ and SEC said was, look, it's really important obviously for a company to undertake pre-acquisition diligence, but recognizes that a practical matter, not all companies are sold with you know complete access to books and records and thorough due diligence. And sometimes it's kind of like you know buying a car off the lot without being able to check under the engine. That's just how how the car is sold. It's at an auction. Well that happens in companies too. And so the DOJ and SEC are saying, okay, in those instances, we recognize that you can buy a company. You know, you may not have access to, you know, it's varying levels of due diligence from zero to, to fully, fully open books and records. And in those instances where you did not have much access to, uh, to books and records and to do thorough diligence, there's just an expectation that you just, within reasonable time of closing, as impractical, you kind of do what you need to do to really look at the books and records and to give an inspection of the company from its anti-bribery and compliance risk perspective to try to identify are there things that need to be fixed you know, in the short term as you integrate that new company into your, your systems. Does the guide provide any guidance as to how to avoid successor liability when misconduct at a target company or recently acquired entity is discovered? Well, yeah, the, the government, the DOJ and SEC, they, they emphasize, you know, throughout the guide, throughout recent policies, they encourage self-disclosure on it. And really, the concept here is that if if you promptly self-disclose an issue after acquiring a company, that there will actually be a presumption, now this is actually in writing now, a presumption of declination, where you uncover the misconduct after you've newly merged or acquired, again, through sort of that either pre or very timely post-acquisition diligence and integration efforts, and then and then go ahead and voluntarily self-disclose it. Now, obviously, you know, although this language is there, a presumption doesn't mean a guarantee. So you still have many issues here in the event a company, you know, is considering self-disclosing an issue of kind of where does that lead the government? It's, it's you're not going to be guaranteed to have a uh, have a declination. And in fact, it, it may turn into a much bigger investigation down the road. But then that gets into sort of the carrot and stick analysis of self-disclosure that the DOJ and FEC have set out in their policies as well as in this uh, updated guide. Does the guide provide any recent examples of this sort of uh, declination? Yeah, it points to the Alstom case where uh, a U.S.-based multinational that acquired Alstom was not held liable because Alstom had paid bribes in the past. and They, they declined to prosecute the acquiring company. 
under successor liability principles and instead actually charge the seller uh, on that. So they kind of pointed out this is how it can work in practice. Does the guide indicate whether the recent trend of increased coordination between enforcement agencies in different countries uh, will continue? Yeah, um, it talks a lot about what we've seen, the trends we've seen the last 10 years around global enforcement and coordination. Coronavirus aside, because I think that's put a bit of a damper on everyone's international coordination, that, that what we have seen on the long arc has been in the last 10 years some fairly dramatic increase in coordination due in part to the fact that a number of countries, major economies have not only passed laws, stringent anti-bribery and and fair competition laws that are consistent with the goals of the FCPA uh, on that, but as well as putting in place enforcement mechanisms that have real teeth. Prosecutors, you know, having actively investigating matters, coordinating with the U.S. and other authorities and and trying to try to bring their own cases, but at the same time, obviously, coordinating with with the U.S. and others. So, so you've definitely seen a dramatic increase in that in, in the last several years. And so the, the the guide recognizes that, but of course, that gets back to the whole issue of this anti-piling on policy, because now all of a sudden, whereas in in 2012 during the last guide uh, when the guide first came out, you know, you may if you if you're a company and you're being investigated by the SEC. DOJ, that might be it. Whereas now, you know, you could also be looking at inquiries from the SFO in the UK, the MPF in Brazil, a number of other regulators uh, in, in a host of countries that have been active in the last few years, including Germany. France is now getting more active, the Netherlands, Sweden, Singapore, you, you name it. There's just been a lot more activity on it. And so now you're, you're, you're faced potentially with having to pay multiple fines to multiple governments in multiple countries. And, um, and so DOJ is also recognizing this factor as well to say the goal here is not to be duplicative of fines and overly punitive uh, on it, but again, the coordination kind of works works both ways. It, it allows the cases to move uh, more swiftly and perhaps more impactful, but also to hopefully cut down on the likelihood, not to eliminate, of course, but to cut down on the duplication of fines and penalties. Thank you, Ryan. Amanda, turning to you. Can you give an overview of what the guide says about how to use company culture and technology to strengthen a compliance program? I think the most interesting thing maybe is that the guide is speaking about company culture and technology and that that is kind of front and center in the approach. Uh, So culture has been a a huge focus, uh, particularly of foreign regulators as well. So the FCA in the UK has been very, very focused on culture, but to see it so explicitly referenced here in the guide is is fairly new and it's not really a new concept in the sense that for a long time we've understood that effective compliance means that you have to have more than a paper policy and it has to be more than um, you know just lip service to this it really has to be embedded into an organization but the statements and the proactive nature of these statements really put a highlight on assessing culture measuring culture uh, and acting upon it and in a continuous way, and also using technology and using data to do this. What does the guide say about how to successfully create a compliance culture? I know we like to look to, to regulators for the solution, but of course it's different and has to be tailored to all of our organizations. Uh, but it does talk about a few areas, and, and one area that it talks about is making sure that the compliance program is really empowered to function effectively. 
And so how do you do that, right? Part of that is making sure that compliance is not just uh, viewed as some kind of support function, but is really integrated into the culture of an organization and is really part of the business so that those two are able to work together and, and really be aligned to achieve the goals and the culture that, that the organization sets out to set. Uh, also looking at resources. So is the compliance program effectively resourced so that it can drive the culture that uh, it seeks to, to drive uh, both from a legal and regulatory perspective, but also just from a pure uh, culture and risk perspective? And there's also a fair amount, as, as we talked about earlier, I think Maria mentioned earlier, the expectation to really understand the root cause of particular issues. Uh, and, you know, in order to, to make real change and to make real movement and to make sure our uh, programs are functioning effectively, that we really have to focus on understanding the root cause of why something happened, making changes that are really designed around targeting what actually caused the issue that we're trying to fix. What are the consequences of not cultivating a compliance culture? I like to turn things on their heads. So I, I, I think instead of looking at consequences, I would maybe rephrase it to say, you know, what's the opportunity for creating a, a effective compliance culture? I mean, certainly some of the consequences are that you may not qualify for the uh, uh, protections that come under uh, the evaluation of corporate compliance programs guidance. So you may not be able to secure a declination. Um, and of course, you may have more stringent sanctions put in place, for example, um, perhaps having a monitor appointed. But really, the, designing the effective compliance culture and focusing on that as the starting point allows you to make sure that you're really mitigating, uh, mitigating risk across your organization. So again, it helps from a legal and regulatory perspective, but it also helps just from a good business organization perspective and making sure that you're achieving the outcomes uh, that you're seeking to achieve as an organization. What does the guide say about the importance of incorporating technology into a compliance program? So I think you can take that question and maybe pair it up a little bit with uh, the focus uh, from the recent guidance on the use of data and using data to measure risk and measure culture. Uh, there is a greater emphasis for sure on effectively using data, making sure compliance, but compliance and the business are working together to understand data and to use it to really test what's happening and monitor what's happening on an ongoing basis so that you can make effective decisions. And of course, data is big. Um, it, it's hard to identify what is the right data set that we should be looking at, what's the right universe of data, what are the right analytics that we should be running. Um, but the, the point is there's a real emphasis here that the data exists and we have to start to work with it and really understand it. And with that, you really can't meet that challenge without using technology. And, you know, you think about the crisis that we've been in and everybody working in different locations and being remote, that has only emphasized the need to be able to rely on technology to access data, to continue to run our organizations, but also continue to, uh, you know, mitigate risk and continue to run our compliance programs. And so I think that really highlights, the crisis has really highlighted the importance of 
technology in an effective compliance program. And honestly, for any global organization, whether we're in crisis or not, you're always going to need to reach data that is all over the world and in several locations. So technology is just a critical, critical piece of making it all work and making sure you're able to really test uh, the effectiveness of your program. And what sorts of practical steps can a company take to incorporate technology into its compliance program? Well, I think circling back to the data point, I think practically one of the first steps, and it sounds pretty obvious, is understanding what data exists and what technology exists. Uh, because once you, once you understand what's out there, you can start to make a plan on how to incorporate it and how, how to use it. Uh, and again, there's no easy answer on this and no one-size-fits-all. Uh, but really mapping out, you know, where are the various pieces of information? What exactly are the risks that I'm trying to mitigate against? And what data should I be trying to use to tell me that story? So, for example, if you're trying to understand if your uh, hotline, complaint hotline, is working correctly, you're going to need to understand, of course, how often the hotline is being used, where the information is coming from. Uh, all kinds of information, all kinds of pieces of data uh, that will be important for you to track uh, because they're all pieces of information that you can then analyze. And so once you do that mapping, it's both a risk analysis mapping as well as a data uh, mapping, you can then think about what technology and what resources you can best leverage to most efficiently and effectively uh, use the data. Taking into account all of the updates we've discussed today, Amanda, what are some of the key takeaways? I think one of the biggest takeaways that we should think about is that we have to continue to think about how to make sure compliance programs are actually working. I mean, the, the guidance comes right out and says, you know, it, is the compliance program working? And does that mean that there will never be any issues? No, right? It, it, it means that we have to be able to see are issues being identified? Where issues are being identified? Is the program able to effectively find solutions and adapt and change over time so that you have an evolving program, right, that, that can really mitigate risk? And so more than anything, I think one of the biggest takeaways and reminders is this, this is a constant process. And you know, once you have a program, it can't stay static. You have to keep working on risk assessment and modification. And, and the focus on culture really highlights all of this and, and brings it together. And I think one of the other things that, that Ryan pointed out is there is an increased focus on uh, investments and acquisitions. And if you think it's hard enough for an organization to really understand their culture, it's even harder when you have an organization that has one culture being combined with an organization with another culture and trying to merge the cultures, merge the compliance infrastructure, merge the businesses, those are all really challenging uh, things that need to happen. And it's not just at the time of the investment or the acquisition that that has to happen. That's going to have to keep happening over time and be refreshed and be ready to change. This is a continuous job. There isn't an easy way to do this, but we have to, we have to recognize that the overall tone and culture is critical, and we have to remember how important 
data uh, is to really making sure that we're doing more than just looking at the policies and procedures that we have in place to test to see whether they're actually working. Amanda, Ryan, Maria, thank you very much for your valuable insight into the update associated with the FCPA resource guide. If you'd like more information on the topics we discussed, or there are other topics of interest to you in the anti-corruption and international risk field, please feel free to visit our website at www.ropesgray.com. And of course, feel free to reach out to any of us if you have any questions about these topics. You can also subscribe and listen to the series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Thank you for listening.